0: Hello, Uh, my name is Natasha Yacoub. I'm a refugee law scholar and um, and practitioner. I've um, worked in Egypt, Sudan, Myanmar and Australia, New Zealand and 14 Pacific Island states. Um, I'm very much uh, looking forward to to discussing uh, these two books with the authors. And uh, before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that We're on the land of the Kaurna people. They're the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains. And I want to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognise their cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship with the land. Um, I think it's really important to um, acknowledge the custodians of the land, the traditional owners, um, in this session, especially because of the links to Australia's treatment of its indigenous population and, um, and refugees. And these are some of the issues that come out very strongly, I think, in the books today. So I'd like to introduce the authors. We have um, Abbas Nazari. In 2001, Abbas and his family fled Afghanistan as refugees and ended up in a small uh, fishing boat in the Indian Ocean. As their boats started to sink, they were rescued by the cargo ship, the Tampa. In what became known as the Tampa Affair, the rescued asylum seekers were denied entry into Australia. Eventually, Abbas and his family were granted asylum to New Zealand, and they're now proud Afghan Kiwis. In 2019, Abbas was awarded a Fulbright Scholarship to the United States. Where he graduated with a Master's in Security Studies from Georgetown University, Washington, D.C. His memoir, After the Tampa, From Afghanistan to New Zealand, is a number one bestseller, and he has recently been named for a finalist for the 2022 Young New Zealander of the Year. <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, And the second author is Javit Alam. In 2013, Javit fled Myanmar's brutal regime, where Rohingya like him were being persecuted and killed in what the International Criminal Court is trying as genocide. He boarded a boat of asylum seekers bound for Australia where he sought protection. Instead of finding refuge, he was transported to Australia's infamous Manus Island Regional Detention Centre. Blistering hot days spent in shipping containers on the island melted into weeks, then years, until finally, after facing jail in Papua New Guinea or being returned to almost certain death in Myanmar, he took matters into his own hands. Drawing inspiration from the hit show Prison Break, I can tell you it's better than Prison Break by the way, (laughs) but drawing inspiration from uh, Prison Break. meticulously planned his escape. He made it out alive, but was stateless, with no ID and no passport. While the nightmare of Manus was behind him, his true escape to freedom had only just begun. How David made it to sanctuary in Canada in a six month long odyssey, by foot, boat, car and plane, with nothing but his instinct for survival is miraculous. It also makes for great reading. And as he makes his way through seven countries and three continents, his story will astonish, anger, and inspire you. It will make you reassess what it means to give refugee status and redefine what can be achieved by one man determined to beat the odds. So I'd like to uh, start then with, Uh, providing the authors with an opportunity to read uh, a passage from their books. And I'll um, start with Abbas.
1: Fantastic. Um, Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Natasha. And uh, thank you all for tuning in today. Uh, You know, I would love to have been there in person to speak with you all. Uh, But here I am in beautiful, sunny Wellington and uh, I hope you can see me and hear me loud and clear. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I assume right, you can. Go ahead, we can hear you really well. Go ahead. Because
1: the screen is frozen, so I'm just gonna continue until I hear a chat or a phone call. You're good. Alrighty. Um, this is a passage from Australia's Closed. It's a chapter within my book, After the Tampa. With no connection to the outside world, we had no idea that the Tampa affair had become a global story. It garnered daily headlines and was now pulling other countries. in
0: Okay, that's all right. We might just see if we can get them back. Otherwise, you'll be stuck with me reading. <laughs> it's better just to wait. Let's see if we can get them back. There were so many great passages in the book I found it hard to choose (laughs) which ones to read so let's see I'll give it a minute and then if we don't hear back from them I'll um, I might read one of my favorite passages (laughs) many favorite passages from the book Okay, just okay. No worries, that's fine. All right, Um, I'm happy to read uh, one of the many favourite passages I uh, have from these books. Um, I think what was quite um, remarkable to me reading them was, um, you know, even though Abbas had uh, come 20 years ago by Tampa. and to be rescued by uh, the Tampa. And uh, I think it was the 20-year anniversary uh, last year of when that had happened. And um, Javit came, uh, you know, more recently. Um, there was striking similarities, I think, in the themes of both books. So um, the Tampa really marked um, a turning point in the militarisation of Australia's policies towards refugees and, uh, you know, as um, Abbas describes the SAS boarding the Tampa, you really get an idea of um, what that was like for a child um, on that boat. And then um, similar themes uh, came up in Javit's book, where he had, you know, fled genocide in uh, it, what, what the ICC is calling genocide in Myanmar, expecting to find safety in Australia. Um, and instead uh, being in uh, detention in what was high-security high prison uh, uh, for years on end uh, in, in Manus Island. And what was really clear then was how difficult it was for both of them uh, to leave their home countries. Uh, what a difficult decision that was uh, to make and how, how hard that was uh, to, to do. Uh, And then, really strongly, the uh, idea of being in limbo came out in both books. So, uh, Javit was, of course, in Indonesia, in limbo, and uh, stuck with the prospect of uh, staying there uh, for an unknown period of time and uh, being in um, uh, places of uh, IOM... Uh, run detention centres for um, for refugees in Indonesia. And um, Abbas was also uh, facing, you know, very difficult uh, conditions and limbo in limbo in Quetta. And they both describe uh, that feeling of being in limbo. Uh, and then their journeys, of course, uh, by sea. So um, the things that they risked, the... Uh, difficulty of um, those journeys. And then, of course, uh, both of them describe uh, in, I think, really great detail, uh, with a very powerful imagery, uh, the cruelty of the treatment that they um, received at the hands of the Australian uh, people, so from whom they'd sought safety. Um, but it's not all... Uh, it's not all grim. I found that uh, in both of their books, there was also, you know, really beautiful, uplifting stories about, um, not just about humanity and about kindness of strangers that they'd met along the way who, you know, would not just um, show kindness to them, but also go out of their way to put themselves at great risk in order to help them. So... The beautiful human stories of compassion and friendship and kindness and um, so many other themes that were coming out that were very common um, that were common to both uh, both of the authors. One of the other um, really important themes that came out was the um, power of knowledge and and of education. So. Uh, both, for both of them uh, to have been cut off from their education um, was really, I think, what, what both of them had found to be one of the most difficult parts of refuge. So to hear them, to, to read about them talking about um, their desperation to have even one book or um, lose themselves in literature again. Um, and to find home in literature and home in in books and in learning uh, was really a, a strong theme for for both of them um, the other the other themes I think that were coming out that um, we'll try to touch on with the with the authors was um, concepts of time so uh, for both of them I think um, they were describing, um, how time was slowly ticking past, their lives were passing them by, or they were withering on the vine of life, as David put it, in Australian detention. So um, contrasting Australia's treatment with uh, with New Zealand's treatment. So we've got them both back, so we'll bring them back now. We might just cut questions to give them enough time to talk. Yeah, that's fine, yeah. no problem. All right, so we've got them back, which is good. Uh, <laughs> I might just ask them to read their passages from the book. Um, we will, I'll let them uh, talk until the end of the session so that um, we probably won't have questions just so that they have a chance to to speak. All right. So, sorry, Abbas, you're back. And I'm just yes, wondering... I am. Can
1: you hear me and see me?
0: Loud and clear. Yep. <laughs> so... Fantastic. You're welcome to read a passage from your book. We'll start now.
1: Sure thing. Thank you. And thank you all for sticking around. I hope Natasha had some cool jokes to keep you going while we reconnected. Um, <laughs> Hey, look, thank you so much. I wish I was there in person, but here I am in Wellington. Uh, Not a bad place to be. This is from Australia's Closed, from my book, After the Tampa. With no connection to the outside world, we had no idea that the Tampa affair had become a global story. It garnered daily headlines and was now pulling other countries into its orbit. The Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs incensed that Australia had escalated a maritime rescue into a military operation, wondered why... After all, a wealthy democracy was refusing to accept the asylum seekers. Indonesia, observing that the was firmly in Australian territory, bluntly refused to become involved. Canberra even sought help from East Timor, which had just emerged from a bloody civil war as the world's newest country and was still under the auspices of the UN. Kofi Annan, the Secretary General of the UN, politely declined. Around the same time, New Zealand answered Canberra's call. In Wellington, Prime Minister Helen Clark had been waiting, had been watching the Tampa saga with growing interest. When Canberra asked for assistance, Clark was told by her officials that the country's only refugee resettlement centre in Auckland could accommodate up to 150 refugees at a time. This was a this was a turning point in my life.
0: Thanks. All right, and uh, thanks, Abbas. And David, uh, would you like to read a passage from your book? Next.
2: Sure. Hi, guys. Thank you so much. And thank you, Natasha, for keeping this up while we're having tech issues. I wish I could be somewhere warmer like you guys there. <laughs> it is uh, hovering about negative four here right now. Oh, oh.
0: Great. <laughs> we we'll channel some sunshine.
2: Yeah, very... Um, so, the following is a passage from the book Escape from Manus. This was um, the part where, after my arrivals on Manus, three months before I had even arrived on Manus, the newly minted Minister for Immigration and Border Protection, Scott Morrison, visited the island to personally deliver a message to prisoners, transferees, as he liked to call them, on behalf of the Australian government. He made a hard line of speech about his government's crackdown on illegal arrival in Australia. It was a one-way address, more in the style of a campaign dispatch to a very dubious crowd, a captive audience, so to speak. There had been no Q and A, no opportunity for detainees to ask about process or timeframes. He just came in, hit his bitter talking points and left. The headline that day in the news was as usual, you will never set foot in Australia. At least he, like the Australian media, which seems to consistently march with him in lockstep, could be credited with consistent messaging. Hopefully, his communication director got a raise or promotion out of the stage event. Now, months later, hundreds of more prisoners were transferred to Manus. Rather than return for another performance, Morrison stood next to a flag in Australia and recorded what he described as an orientation video to be shown to transferees. G4S played it on the loop on the communal TVs mounted around the detention center. You have been brought to this place because you have sought to illegally enter Australia by boat. The new Australian government will not be putting up with this sort of arrivals. You will never leave in Australia. If you are found not to be a refugee, you will remain in this camp until you decide to go home. It was bleak and demoralizing, and a reminder of who was the boss. We might have been under the legal jurisdictions of Papua New Guinea, according to the deal made by the previous administration in Australia, but since coming to power, Morrison and others in the Abbott government had made it clear offshore processing was now their policy, and they were pulling all the strings. If you choose not to go home, then you will spend a very, very long time here, Morrison told us numerous times a day with a face as impassive and inescapable as the modern day big Brother Thank you
0: Thanks David and I think um, from those passages you get a sense of uh, how much how rich how much rich information there is in both of these books um, and now I want to start to unpack um, some of the issues with both of you I'll, I'll ask you each questions in turn. Um, first, Abbas. In the first part of your book, um, you describe the general um, gradual encroachment of the Taliban forces into your uh, little village, a beautiful but increasingly dangerous place to be. Uh, and then, as you see the um, people leaving, household by household, uh, your dad was faced with the difficult decision to whether or not to move um, your family. Um, for all of us uh, who can't really imagine what it's like to take a decision like that, I'm just wondering if you can uh, talk to us about that, explain that.
1: Sure thing. That's a fantastic starting point. And um, before I begin, I also want to just acknowledge that there's a huge Afghan-Australian community right in Adelaide, and I know a few friends of mine might be in the audience, might be live streaming, so I just want to give you guys a shout-out. Hey, look, the <laughs> that word decision is so both incredibly appropriate and inappropriate at the same time. And the reason is that in so many instances, you have uh, the choices is made for you. There are forces outside of your control, which in my case was the, the encroachment and the, the forever growth of the Taliban at the time. Uh, putting it to today in 2022, I mean you look at the Ukrainian situation, those people don't have a choice whether they want to stay in Kiev, or, or other places. the choice is made for them because bombs are falling around them and in my case the taliban had seized the villages around us and we could either stay and become cannon fodder or become uh, you know prisoners or or uh, you know at the very at the very least at least kicked off our lands at the hands of the taliban or we we could be we could leave and that was it. the choice was made. We didn't want to leave. We'd lived on those lands for generations as passed down from generation to generation. And and so I found it very hard to to get that point across that a lot of people see people on the move and they think, well, mate, they've decided to leave their country. They've decided to seek shelter elsewhere. But there are so many steps in the lead up to that, that uh, people miss that we don't want to leave, that this is our farmland, this is where I've grown up, this is where my friends are, this is where my sense of community is. And now, for forces outside of our control, we have to go. And so that was a decision that we faced all the way back in O1 and, and sadly, uh, you know, we see time and time again with many other communities.
0: Absolutely. Uh, thanks for making that really important distinction. And. Uh, and it goes then to the question of whether people are arriving illegally uh, or not, and it's obviously not illegal to seek asylum under international law. So, um, and to the to the reading that Javit did, Javit, did you want to comment on that as well, or?
2: Yeah, I or think uh, it is really important uh, to that point to echo Abbas, like the choice. I think people who had never to leave or who had never to abandon everything they had might never realize this, but when. Uh, if we look at it with an, uh, to a, from an analogy of, like, let's say a snake is chasing you, and you don't necessarily decide where to go, you take the chance you have, whatever it is, you don't you don't care. You just take the best possible survival, the best possible chance that offer the survival for you. And you, in that case, you, in the case of Australia, it's like you arrived, uh, we were even told at points uh, in on manners, like. Um, during one of the interview uh, or information sessions that they like to call, um, we never send out invitation letters or anything. Uh, but when you're running from a snake, you don't care if it is a private property or there is no trespassing sign. You just jump over the fence, whichever has the highest survival chance of it. And I think that's really important. That choice was not never made like a conscious decision, it's almost like your unconscious brain like driving you at that point. And also leaving home, uh, I think that's also another uh, very important point that I feel like leaving home is like not just the house or the home in physical form, you're abandoning everything you have known at that point. And I think I have never met a single person yet to this day who loved to left to abandon their home.
0: That's right. Uh, thanks, David. I think um, that comes out really powerfully in, in both of your books. Uh, and um, I think an, another point. So, a question to you, David. Uh, another point that comes out very uh, powerfully, I think, in your book is uh, the comparison of the um, your treatment at the hands of the Australian government and your treatment uh, by the Myanmar government. Um, so there, there are comparisons all the way, all the way through, so about um, dehumanisation, not using names, giving a number, you were EML019, you didn't have a name, uh, and then comparing that with what had happened in Myanmar and uh, you know, how language matters and, and words have consequences, life-destroying consequences. Um, and I have to say, that really struck me... Um, it really struck a chord with me having worked in your hometown, in um, in Mongdor and uh, in Rakhine State, uh, and then having moved uh, with the UN to work uh, in Manus and... Uh, ..on Manus and Nauru. Um, the, the comparisons were very evident to me as well, just about dehumanising acts and... Uh, language and uh, the importance of language um, and how language, uh, you know, the, the short path from uh, harmful language to to violence, acts of violence. Um, so I just wonder if you could um, expand on that a little bit. Sure.
2: Um, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I think the language matters a lot, especially the way it is being, uh, especially if it is being um set or put up by official governments or official state, uh, this is often time, or, or in the case of madness in Australia, it was most of the time, by the t- uh, the truth actually made to outside, like that the lies that have been put out of theirs reach everywhere and there is like no damage controls or anything for uh, one of the example was like when the prisons was attacked, um, there was like official statements of saying um, it was, the detainees who were trying to escape, but the reality was the other way around. Everybody came into the centers and attacked. But that truth, even after um, finding of like numerous investigations, um, never corrected. And, like to the eyes of the public, to the eyes of Australia, it's always um, detainees, illegal arrivals, escapees, violence like this might not matter a lot if you look at individually but if you look at like consistent uh, over the time you would see like this starting to a picture starting to uh, emerge out of it and while on man this given the time uh, it might be unfair for me to just say one or two examples and I uh, hope you will be convinced to compare a dictator uh, an authoritarian regime in Burma with Australia but if you look at all the details the the similarities were striking, like the removal of individuality on Manus Island, taking people's name off and giving them a number, and um, using several tactics that which I never hoped that I will see in a, in a country, or in a democratic country like this. Um, uh, divide and conquer, like setting up detainees against each other. Um, I can go on and go on, but it is very similar, and it shocked me at some point but the difference is in Burma or in any other authoritarian regime like if they do bad things and they you know they abuse the, the residents or the citizens it's often um, visible or often make it to the media that way in the case of Myanmar, in the case of Australia it was um, often rebranded you know with a little bit of uh, rhetoric and sugar-coated words and um, labeled as uh, labeled as common sense, to be honest, uh, labeled as like uh, protecting the borders, saving lives while punishing those who just made that sea. Um, so there is a difference, but in Australian one, it is, um, I guess, the, it went through a process of like media process of uh, putting out, out there. By the, by the end, it was, it was being sold as common sense to the, to the Australian public.
0: Um, Thanks, David. I think um, that's part of the reason why I saw your book is so important because it's uh, filled with so many facts and uh, incredible detail and um, accurate details uh, of of, um, what what goes on in the Manus Island Detention Centre and in a way it sort of redresses the balance and and why it makes it so important to read. Um, Abbas... I think you also have uh, a lot of important detail and you address um, similar issues about language uh, in your book. Did you want to comment a little bit on what Javid has said?
1: Yeah, I think I always find it, uh, you know, never lost on me the fact that uh, at the time of the Tampa affair, there was not one person, one photograph, one name or one one key identifier of us while we were being, uh, you know, uh, held on on the Tampa. All you had was that really iconic photo uh, taken from Christmas Island of the big red container ship out there in the ocean and not one photo or one name or one quote or anything attributed to us. So in many cases, it was almost like even though we're out out there in the Indian Ocean, we might as well have been on another planet because we were that cut off. Everything that was being said about us uh, was without us, essentially. And now it's never lost on me that here I am writing a book telling the story for the first time from mine and, and so many others' perspectives. So that not only, my point here is that it's not only the, the type of words and the type of rhetoric and language that is used. In many instances, the entirety of the story is never revealed or never allowed to be told uh, to listeners, and for me to finally have the chance to tell the story and the, the incredible, incredibly warm reception it's received from both sides of the, of the ditch, uh, it's been fantastic and, and incredibly humbling experience.
0: Yeah. yeah, and thank you for telling those stories. Um, I think one of the Really striking points that comes out in both of the books is uh, the fact that um, before someone gets onto a boat, they've shown incredible strength and courage and resilience already to even get there, to survive the boat journey, and then uh, to seek protection. Uh, and then it becomes very clear, uh, you know, what it is that they're uh, in need of that that's sorely lacking in uh, in the response of Australia. So really important stories to tell. Thank you. So from Abbas, um, you tell from a real childlike perspective um, what it was like um, fleeing. You uh, talk about how you got to Quetta and um, when you arrived there you had a banana for the first time. You saw a banana and a mango for the first time and Um, You didn't know what to do with the banana, so you ate it with the skin on. And then you um, went through to... uh, ..onto the boat um, and you... um, Onto a plane first for the very first time in an airport from your little village, first time on a plane, so you felt like you were in the belly of a giant bird, you said. Um, And then uh, you get, of course, to the Palapa, the boat that was to take you to Australia. Um, And you said it was, I think, uh, like a... Dying donkey, you know, it was really that had been whipped to its last breath. It was really just quite unseaworthy. So you're describing it very much from this childlike perspective. But then, after miraculously surviving a storm on that um, boat, you were rescued by the Norwegian commercial ship, the MV Tampa, that was fulfilling its duty under international law of the sea to rescue you and uh, and take you to the nearest port, which was Australia. Um, And then you were stopped by the Australian government for docking. And then you said in the days that followed, um, you aged far beyond your years. Um, Can you describe what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, the the entire journey from, uh, you know, jumping in the back of a lorry all the way in day one when we left our little village in the central highlands of Afghanistan to being in a refugee camp in Pakistan to you know, living uh, place to place, street to street in Jakarta, Indonesia, to finally being rescued. Their entire journey was, uh, to me, in the eyes of eight-year-old bus, was just one giant, awesome adventure. I had no context, no understanding, no real uh, greater understanding of the why we were doing what we were doing. I could understand the physical environment, and that was it. And then when we went through the storm, which was the experience or the episode that is etched into my memory in high definition, uh, and i remember it to my, to my dying day, when we went to the storm and then we get rescued by this boat, this giant, you know, red metal wall that appears out of the horizon. The experience of being both the storm itself, the couple of days that we spent on that fishing boat, and then the days and then often weeks that we would spend out at sea while the Tampa fields was playing out, that had such a profound impact uh, on me and the 400 others who were rescued for so many reasons. We had come as close to death as you can imagine. And then we were rescued. Again, the, the the sense of jubilation was out of this world. It was like an out-of-body experience. And then for that relation to just suddenly come crashing down and be this elongated, this, this um painful days that would turn into weeks out there in the Pacific Ocean, in the in the in the equatorial heat out there in the Indian Ocean. It it was just this it was very hard to describe that massive shift of mood. And so even though we spent a total of, I think, five weeks at sea during the entire Tampa saga, it, it could have easily been five years because that's how much emotion we went through uh, in that time. So we aged, obviously, physically because of the, the impact of being out there and sleeping in a container and using plastic bags and buckets full of trains. Uh, but also mentally and emotionally it had a massive massive toll thankfully ironically so looking back at it uh, i'm so thankful that i was a little kid throughout that because my age meant that perhaps i am shielded away from some of the mental trauma that someone who is a bit older who had a greater understanding of the experience uh, they would have to carry that for far far longer than i did Uh, so i find that as a bit of a silver lining
0: Thanks, Abbas. Um, that uh, really comes out, I think, uh, strongly in the book as well. That you write your story, but also on behalf of um, you know others who, who whose path was quite different. Javed, do you want to um, comment on that?
2: Yeah, I think uh, Abbas just hit it in the nail. When um, there was a point in in Manus where, where I wish I never understood English. I wish I never spoke English because the more you're able to understand the more you're observant, uh, the more you suffer because like people who don't understand might be able uh, who don't understand English at least at a with all of those Australian accents that are coming from so fast at that time um, would not have to put up with the mockery of like the, the the guards making joke out of you like they wouldn't have to put it up with it. But the more you understand, the more observant you are and. The more you suffer, essentially, and I think that's um, that's one of the very key points there, like having a different time of the different times of um, age over there. And the other point also was the time expand itself, like in the way of. I I can't even I think word would do justice, like if I were to describe how time expand. And uh, the the cherry on the top on the on the case in the case of Australian detention was like you we never had a, a date like we never had a, a sentence to uh, to say so to speak like and if, of which um, I guess even the worst of the worst criminal could expect, we didn't have a date to come to we didn't have a we didn't know if or when we will get out so it was like um, this torture like mental mentals and psychological torture was following you 24/7 it, it's not like physical torture where once you know, um, they stop kicking you. The, the pain stops. It, it doesn't. It it's it follows you 24/7. It won't let you sleep. Doesn't let you. Um, it doesn't let you rest. It doesn't let you like think. It's like constantly there. So, and I think that takes a huge mental toll. And how the time is being perceived at that times. And you would often hear from the from the guys uh, on manless like you know. The time and having, uh, especially on manners, where we were kind of um, from the civilizations. Like for the first three years, you would do like random stuff that won't make sense in the outside world. Like there was a uh, one time where a, a friend of mine was saying like, "Oh, did you count those nails on the on the roof?" And uh, the, jo- uh, the I was like, "No, I actually name each of them, not just count them." So like, there's a lot of things that when toppling the times upside down, do uh, to human brain and the stretch that so much. Yeah, um, I think
0: thanks, Eva. Uh, thanks, David. I think one of the um, incredible uh, aspects of your, your book that I found most surprising is how well you were able to capture some of those experiences uh, for people like us, um, and it's you know, not just uh, the cruelty, I think, and, and when you're talking about mental suffering, that uh, has been documented very much uh, with Manus and Nauru and the concepts of, um, you know, limbo, being in limbo and indefinite detention and all of those um, breaches of fundamental human rights um, and that then have such dire consequences on the individuals that are subject to them. Um, and, you know, Australia's been referred, I think, six times to the International Criminal Court for its conduct on, um, on in offshore processing. So it was quite incredible then that you were able to really transport the reader there and really explain um, that cruelty uh, in human terms. But it's not all uh, doom and gloom. Your book also um, has incredibly beautiful stories of human compassion and kindness. Um, and uh, yeah, as much as some of the um, scenes from uh, Myanmar and from uh, Manus Island had me in tears uh, of frustration or anger, um, so too did some of the um, beautiful stories of kindness and friendship um, of strangers uh, have, have me in tears as well. So, uh, you know, at the point um, when you were leaving the Solomon Islands, um, you know, there was a a woman, Rindy, who had helped you. Um, in fact, she'd gone to great risk to herself, I think, so going above and beyond uh, to help you. And I think you were saying when you left her, how can I repay you? And she said, you know, in Solomon Islands culture, there is no debt among friends, um, which had me in tears. But um, without um, making the audience cry, uh, could, you <laughs> could you please, um, Elaborate a little bit on some of the the themes of kindness and compassion uh, that you elaborate on in the book.
2: Sure. Uh, to since I'm talking to most of you guys in there in Australia, I think like uh, I would make the case of the for the very first helper was um, an Australian woman, and this was at a time when I I think I it's fair to say like I lost faith in humanity. Like I was so bitter, salty, like and all of that. It, you know what. Uh, everywhere I turn I see an Australian guards when I see Australian government poking me from uh, left to right and right to left like so i I had like very little to no hope and then like there were this woman who essentially was taking huge um, legals and professional risks of on her own for someone who never met her some essentially a stranger and then like that was the first time that um I think a single individual helped me to restore faith in humanity, and it was it was quite important at the time because on one side it was Australian governments and all these Australian guards, on the other side it was the same Australian woman who was helping me, and it, it, it you can see like I had a hard time like to take both of them in the process, so, and it continued. There was also people um, actually in the system in the working for the detentions and working in the governments yet doesn't necessarily agree with what is going on and then like they feel help, helpless like um, to, against such giant systems and they took risks to to help yet someone who they never met, uh, they would never met in the futures, and they barely know my full story and yet took such great risks like to help someone get out and uh, it often made me think the most impactful act of uh, helping were like those who never expect anything in returns and then like just help to move the humanity forward. And I had without, I, even though I can, you know, put out their names out there for, for being uh, fierce of repercussions, uh, I think I would have never made it without their helps. So in that case, uh, I, I, I always like to say, doesn't matter how much um, resilience or how hardworking a person this is, it always take another person who is probably on the more privileged end of that spectrums to put this kindness to make that into, uh, to make that uh, fully blooms to someone. So it's kind of like this dispositions between the two, like taking the kindness and giving the kindness. And it is often, uh, in my case, happen to be a stranger's.
0: Mm, incredible. You know, I, I, uh I have to say that you were the only person to escape um, from Manus Island detention, and uh, the story of moving from Pacific Island state to Pacific... How you did that uh, is nothing short of incredible and uh, much better than any episode of Prison Break, I have to say. Uh, It took a lot of strength and courage and... uh, uh, planning from your side, but you really do weave in the stories of strangers and how each time um, there was a stumbling block, you would meet someone who would then facilitate the rest of the journey. Uh, and I, yeah, it was very compelling reading, I found. I couldn't put it down, I just turning the pages to work out what was going to happen next. It was really, had me on the edge of my seat. Um, but, you know, it was also uh, good, I thought, in the sense that it doesn't uh, show refugee issues as they're often portrayed as polarized so black and white bad, you know good and evil and or just it's there were no binaries you sort of moved away from that and you sh- showed some of the nuance and um, complexities of the situation and and human experience um, as you were leaving um, and that's something Abbas that you do uh, as well at there and you touch on at the end of your book which I also found to be a Absolute page turner um, and read in one go. I think because uh, you know at the end when you're reflecting um, on uh, the polarised refugee uh, issues, but then more broadly about racism uh, that you had said you'd never experienced in New Zealand, and then you know the Christchurch massacre happened, and then you know you also reflecting on what had happened in Afghanistan in your home country, um, and then tying it all in. Uh, to, to your experiences, you make really very profound statements in the last chapter about um, how to move beyond uh, those uh, that polarize debate and uh, and change. I think the um, the narratives of discourse with more sort of empathetic approaches um, and and take into account multiple perspectives. So. Uh, can you just elaborate for us on how you think, you know, especially there's an election coming up here uh, and the issues, are, the policies are the same as they were, you know, if, if not more yeah. hard than they were 20 years ago. So how do we move beyond this? What what are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh, man, you know, here I am in little old New Zealand looking at what's happening across the ditch in Australia. Obviously a big year for you guys in the election looming. And the one thing that I always get from readers of my book is that it's given them a sense of perspective on refugee issues, it's given a sense of perspective on what's happening in Afghanistan, why that country is the way that it is. So that that word, that's it, perspective. And if we are to able if we are able to just uh, what I say, you know, sometimes zoom out of an issue, sometimes we get lost in the nitty gritty. We zoom so far into the day to day, the minute by minute, that we actually lose sense of the bigger picture. And and all that nuance is lost, and it, everything becomes black and white. When in fact the world is not black and white. So my key point here, and I'll, show, and I'll share two very quick stories from the book. You know, uh, I grew up in Christchurch in, in Canterbury. That's even though I'm based in Wellington now, here working. Uh, you know, Christchurch will always be home. Big fan of the Crusaders rugby team, which tends to dominate every Australian rugby team. There, sorry guys. <laughs> and um, the the. The Ridge, obviously, the Crossbridge mosque shootings happened. I was just down the road when it happened. You know, there's a chapter in the book called A Dark Day in the Garden City, and it's probably one of the hardest chapters for me to write about. And the reason that was is obviously just the sheer terror that, that you know, uh, a man from Grafton, New South Wales, you know, unleashed on our beautiful little city. But in amongst that, the Afghan community rallied around and we were trying to figure out, trying to pick up the pieces afterwards. And we are always trying to see... What the hell do we make of this? Is this the New Zealand that we know and love? Is this the New Zealand that has been, been so good to us? And one elder stood up in the community and he said, look, when we first arrived off the Tampa and we arrived at Auckland Airport, they closed the curtains on the bus that was going to take us from the airport into the Mangere Refugee Resettlement Centre. And everyone said, why would you close the curtains? You know, we, we arrived in a new country, we want to see what's out there. And the reason was that they'd heard Uh, that heard some intel that there might be protesters on the way who might be against us arriving to New Zealand. Keep in mind, this was three weeks after 9-11. And yet, on the way to the Refugee resettlement Centre, there wasn't any protest. There was one man holding a miserable little sign, and we were welcomed into the Refugee Centre with incredible, the most amount of food I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> and and so, so the perspective is so key. that That's the key point there. Do we choose to remember the actions of one guy with a miserable sign or do we choose to remember the incredible welcome that we were given on that first day in New Zealand? And I think when it comes to policy, refugee and immigration policy, be it here in Australia, be it here in New Zealand or there in Australia, uh, that's so key to, you know, that's so important to ma- maintain. And that's why I think my book and my story and, and, and Javit's book has resonated with readers, that it gives you a sense of perspective of, you know, some of the real problems out there, but also in amongst that black and white, there's a hell of a lot of grey.
0: Yeah. I agree. Uh, Javid, do, do you want to add anything to that or...?
2: Uh, maybe just quickly touch on the on your points of black and uh, black and white, which is not so much grey. I think part of the reason that uh, we people rarely get to talk to or much so less about reading of like uh people who actually experience this through. So like whenever there's a story of like whether it's a refugees or war, like by the time it made to publish you know, uh published book or published articles, it goes through like numerous publishing Filters and by the time it managed to reach out there it barely <laughs> contains the the original, <laughs> all the nuance and all the details of it. And I think um, it's only by either talking to someone's or like you know, uh, readings or other who went through that you realize. And I had this, uh, I had this not joke but actual experience. Of like my first landlord when I was when I was renting in the an apartment in Waterloo was, like, probably uh, the harshest <laughs> old grumpy man that I've ever seen. Um, he was, like, constantly, you know, giving me a hard time, and um, part of the reason was, like, his cycles were, like, mostly white and uh, and whatnot. He was a big Trump supporter and yada, yada, yada. But um, at the end, when I was leaving, on, and he was, like, offering me, essentially, to stay rent-free and then, like, saying, oh, no, I gotta go, and he was, like, Uh, Just come back whenever you need, Uh, you're the nicest brown persons I've ever met and I'm also (laughs) the first brown person who actually lived with them. Um, So I think it is important to get that great nuance (laughs) that often doesn't make past the publishing filter um, to actually understand what is behind the scene.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Just on that point, I mean, um, Javit, your experience after arriving in Canada was markedly different um, from the uh, experience you had uh, when you um, sought protection from Australia. Uh, I wonder if you could, and, and you know, of course we hear I uh, often think about uh, Canada as a, an example of um, good practice and in, in many ways in uh, in asylum. Uh, and I just wonder if you could uh, let us know uh, a little bit about how you were received and, and whether Canada really is, um, you know, how we perceive it to be from here, from Australia.
2: Yeah, um, sure. And thank you. I think that's a very uh, important comparison, which I often make without you know, consciously thinking about it. Um uh my first welcoming into on Christmas Island JD on that day, uh on that July sunny morning was um a formula strip search all the way to you know all the all the way to uh, naked and and on and that's so after four years and four and a half years on mana's like you know seeing all these hardened uniforms I was mentally and physically prepared when I was arriving um, at Toronto Pearson Airport. And there was this uh, immigration officer who said, uh, the default protocol is for him for him to you know go through the interview and then like, uh, but I didn't have any food for the last three nights and days. So I was like, my stomach was built up in acid and uh, I was having a hard time. And then he said, he left the room so I was expecting, you know, for him to arrive with, uh, with a bunch of more immigration officers, like the way it happened on Manus often time, two guards on each side and I barely have to walk. They will just like race you and drag you to the planes. Um, I was waiting um, for him to arrive with more officers, obviously. Uh, but then he arrived with a subway sandwich and said, uh, I can't interview someone who is pain and hungry. The kitchen is closed because it is past 2 a.m. in the morning. So he went out and bought a Subway sandwich with his own money. And after four years on the I wasn't expecting that, not at least from a uniform officer. So and that was like the first lessons uh, right at the airport. And then it, it continues somehow, but in the bigger picture was uh, in, in Australia, I think the same amount of money, billions of dollars, if not like less than Canada was being used to exclude like this very, uh, you know, a specific cohort of peoples, And at the same time, I see the same, if not much, was being used for inclusions on purpose in Canada. And at the end, the difference where the results were one is like. At a cost of like you know, erasing the history and uh, the great moral cause and the big human suffering that uh, that resulted from those exclusions and um on in Can in Canadians I even can see like you could read the text and you got skill laborers and you got educated peoples without anything I said like it's oftentimes uh, I was being told a few times when I was in Manus like there was these arguments of um, Centrelink which I believe is the welfare uh, uh, welfare agency um, that like people will suck on the, well, uh, central links or whatnot. But at the same time, if you are afraid of inclusion costing money, but the exclusion was actually costing almost double that money. Like it was billions of dollars on unmanaged. And look at the, look at Canada, like if there was inclusions policy on purpose. With the same money, you get much more achieved, not just cruelty. So I think uh, this, the blanket arguments are like the overall overarching themes that I have uh, come to realize like over the last few years at my time here
0: thanks David and uh, I think that's what the book makes very very clear I think as well is just um, a big question mark about those punitive policies and and uh, why that level of cruelty is is necessary or or how unnecessary it is to be more precise um, and also both of you I think uh, through your uh, contrasting experiences with both Canada and and New Zealand then um, draw out, you know, the difference between a policy that's driven by security and punitive measures versus a policy that's driven by um, protection and care. Um, And they're not mutually exclusive, obviously, but there's over, you know, one approach really overrides the other. Um, And... in in, in both instances. Um, So I just wonder if you wanted to quickly touch on that as well, Abbas, because it obviously comes out for the second half of your book. Uh, Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, you know, I... Look, first and foremost, obviously, I'm speaking to an Australian audience. I don't want to keep bashing Aussies for being, you know, (laughs) bad rugby players and and compassionate and all the rest of it. i got plenty of Aussie mates and and hoping when border restrictions are lifted, I'll come out over there and do an Aussie book tour. Yeah. But the, you know, look, I got queens over there, and, and the point the point I want to make <laughs> the point I want to make is this that there are many different ways of doing something, you know, and whether you know we should all have strong uh, border protection or immigration rules, whatever you want to call it. But I think it's very it's abundantly clear to, to myself having been on the other side of it. To analysts uh, outside of Australia and folks like yourself within Australia that perhaps it's gone beyond just border protection and just become plainly inhumane. It's, It's financially unfeasible. We all know that. It's your taxpayer dollars that are paying for it. And then, you know, in my book, I say when this dark chapter in Australian history is closed and perhaps a former, a future government will do a Royal Commission of Inquiry into it, I think many of the architects will long be gone by then, and hopefully there might be a moment of reflection on the fact that this, this policy has led to the deaths and suicides of so many people who just came out in search of a better life. So that's, that's my view on it. And then a lot of people say, well, if you were in a room with John Howard, what would you say to him? And, you know, say, I have a hell of a lot to say to John Howard, but, but the reality of it is this. It's that um, little old New Zealand gave us a chance to, to live out our lives, And everything that I ever needed to say to to that government uh, has been uh, said in the way we have lived and most importantly thrived right here in New Zealand. And if you look at the refugee populations around the world, all they need is just those three things, a bit of security, you know, a bit of dignity and a bit of agency. And that's, that's, uh, you know, they can get on with living. And sadly, when I look at Australia's policy, they are stripped of those three things. They have no security, they have no dignity, and they're stripped of all agency. And it's it's, it's very sad to watch. And I'm, I'm so thankful that there are folks like yourselves out there who are who care, who give a damn, and who are willing to lobby and send an email to your local MP to say, hey, what are you doing about this?
0: All right. I think uh, I could probably uh, keep you guys in conversation all day and all night, but I, w- I won't. I just wondered if there was um, a final point um, that you wanted people to um, take from your books. Um, first, uh, David, then uh, Abbas. Javit, first.
2: Sure. Um, thank you. If there, I were to have. Um a message that I can uh, I can uh, I can give to you guys all is just ask for like uh, I can I can clearly see at a, at a time in future uh, there will be you know a moment of reckonings and saying sorry to these peoples uh, who all suffered as a consequences of policies that the government put up. But um, a lot of things were done, I think it's fair to say under your name with your tax money. And I think it is important for you to claim that and like not to let your name stains in the, in the bigger pictures In from looking from across, uh, halfway across the world, um, a lot of people often say, oh, the Australian's are doing it. The Australians are doing it. Like it's, it doesn't distinguish oftentimes like the Australian public as the Australian governments. It's like, it's a democracy, it's uh, elected governments and it's essentially under your name. Armani, and I think it is important for you to know what is being done under your name with your money.
0: Absolutely. Thanks. And Abbas, your final word.
1: Uh, first, I want to thank you all for coming out today and, and actually caring and, and, and choosing to reflect. You know, August uh, 2021 was the 20th anniversary of the Tampa Affair. And that's why my book came out in August last year to mark that occasion. Uh, and and so thank you all for coming out today. Look, my, my key, key point that I want to pass to folks within the audience and people tuning in right now across Australia, but most importantly, to those who, who, who wince at the thought of talking about refugees who shy away or who turn away vehemently when you want to bring up this topic, who have very strong opinions on it, those are the people that I try to engage with in this book I wanted this to be picked up by someone who was who wanted the borders to be even stronger than how it built them. I want to be able to engage with those people and say, hey man, the threat, the imagery, the narrative that you have been fed about these people coming to threaten your way of life, to take your jobs, this and that, it's all false. And all you have to do is look around the refugee populations throughout Australian and, and global history and, and their their, uh, um, uh, their additions and their, uh, that they have made to the contributions that they've made to their communities. I'm so proud of the Tampa uh, community because off the back of that we have a thriving Afghan Kiwi population. and I know there are a hell of a lot of Afghan Australians watching today and they're in all sorts of fields, you know students, nurses, police officers, people in all sorts of trades and all that. And they're just part and parcel of Australian, New Zealand, Canadian public life. They're just part. They're, they've woven themselves into the fabric of daily society. And and I would say that the few, uh, sorry, the the those who have been um, uh, prevented that ideal, those who have been locked up, because they want to be part of that fabric, uh, sadly, uh, they will be scarred mentally and emotionally. For the rest of their lives, and it's a stain on Australia's reputation.
0: Thank you so much. So let me finish then uh, where we started, and that was um, with a uh, with acknowledgement of country and uh, linking back to one of the passages from Javit's book. Uh, actually, um, a, a theme that comes out as well in in Abbas' book, and it's the link to colonialism. Uh, he's Javid says, hatred, xenophobia, militarism and the spirit of conquest has deep roots on the island and in Australian culture. Back in the days when the white settlers cleared the territory for themselves, their efforts set off a long chain of events that resulted in some Indigenous people being sent to missions and other institutions to get them out of the way. So to the extent that refugee issues have been put elsewhere, to the extent that they've been hidden from view, that people have been put on offshore... Um, processing detention centres and uh, me- uh, media has found it difficult to report uh, or that people who work there have had sanctions against them for speaking out to the extent that they uh, have been kept in the shadows or in the dark. Uh, these books offer some light and uh, as both of these incredible authors have uh, have spoken to you uh, about today, it's... it's um, it's really important to hear and understand their stories. They've spoken, they've, uh, they've shared their stories with you, and, uh, and I do think it's our responsibility as Australians to read it. So, there are copies available in the bookstore over there. Thank you for your time, thanks for your interest, and mostly thank you to our two brilliant authors who shared their stories.
1: Thank, thank you guys. very much. Cheers. Thank you.